North American Mission Board. So this morning, as we jump into the last week of our series on the seven feasts, um, this is a little bit different of a, of a week, maybe, but it's, uh, it's a tag on to it. So over the last few weeks, we've looked at the three fall uh, holy days that God has appointed for his people. We also briefly mentioned the four spring holy days. And so these seven together, they make up the feasts or the appointed times that God has established um, in the Old Testament for his people to gather together and to celebrate him and to recognize his sovereignty and his provision and his goodness and, and all of these things. And instead of being caught up in the humdrum of, of society, that they would, they would focus um, on their creator and their savior, God, and they would run their life around him. Today we're going to look at two very significant time periods that are uh, much longer. Uh, they're not just a day or a week. Um, instead, they last for an entire year. It's a year-long period of time that reflects the trust in God. These time periods, like the previous seven that we've looked at, are rooted in the weekly Sabbath that we first discussed. Without an understanding of Sabbath, you really can't understand any of these. And the Sabbath goes back to God created in six days and he rested or he finished his work on the seventh. Okay? And so that is really the, the fundamental premise for all of these feasts or appointed times. And um, as you'll see, especially also the two we're going to look at today. So the, work, the idea of working six days and resting on the seventh continues to be the standard image, whether we're dealing with days, weeks, months, or as you'll see today, years. So uh, you have notes, papers on your table. I encourage you to take notes. Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2 opened up the, the feast that we looked at uh, with the phrase, The Lord spoke uh, to Moses, and he said, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, These are my appointed times, the times of the Lord, that you will proclaim as sacred assemblies. And so we established the fact that Leviticus is filled with uh, quotes from God, how he spoke to his people, and he wanted them to gather and remember him in these appointed times, these different feasts in the spring and in uh, the fall. And so as we looked at these, uh, we saw that the biblical calendar did not look like our calendar, but instead it's kind of um, cyclical, if you, if you will, which agricultural calendars are usually cyclical like that. Um, but you saw that the, the first uh, feasts up at the top um, were for uh, the spring, and then the three at the bottom were for the fall. So you got Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then weeks for Pentecost, and then for the fall, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. All right, Hanukkah is on there, but Hanukkah was added uh, way after the fact. And so these different feasts, we've looked at them, uh, the fall ones in detail, the spring ones just uh, briefly. We'll probably come back to those in the spring. And so the seven feasts in the calendar year kind of have a group of three and then a one and a three. All right? And these are the three different times that the Israelite men were supposed to go up to Jerusalem uh, to worship God there and to gather together. These three pilgrimages, if you will. And then we looked at the idea of how these biblical holidays um, pointed to Jesus and how he uh, fulfills them. And so today what I just want to do is remind you of the, the fall feast and then jump into these two new things that we're going to look at today. And so the Trumpets, Tabernacles, Day of Atonement, these all occur in the seventh month. And so the fall feasts, okay, if you go to, go to the fall feast slide there, it begins with the blowing of the what? The trumpet, okay, the shofar or the trumpets, okay? And so the blowing of the trumpets or the, or the shofar starts the month of Tishri, the seventh month, okay? 
And in that, the, the whole thing is that they're getting ready for is for God to come meet with them. The tab- tabernacle fire, the sacrifice being, being consumed by God, and God's going to meet with his people. And so with that, on the first day was the day of trumpets. Okay, then there was the ten days of awe. And then on the tenth day was the day of atonement. All right? And then following that was a week long of tabernacles, which was the 15th through the 21st, with the eighth day on the 22nd, which we looked at last week. After that, we come to the Sabbath year. So today we're going to talk about the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year. And so the Sabbath year we find in Leviticus 25. And so we're going to look at the first seven verses first, and then we'll look at the rest of it. We're going to look at basically the whole chapter of Leviticus 25 today. So Leviticus 25, first seven verses. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. He said, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land will observe a Sabbath to the Lord. You may sow your field for six years, and you may prune your vineyards and gather its produce for six years, but there will be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land in the seventh year. A Sabbath to the Lord. You are not to sow your fields or prune your vineyards. You are not to reap what grows by itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. It must be a year of complete rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during the Sabbath year can be food for you, for yourself, your male, your female slaves, the hired hand, or the foreigner who stays with you. All of its growth may serve as food for your livestock and the wild animals and your land. Okay, so these verses teach us about the Sabbath year that God set up. All right, and so it starts with Sabbath. So already you've got to understand what that is, which is why we spent all these previous weeks and so the whole idea of seven, and on the seventh year rest, and so this is a, a rest year, a Sabbath year, all right? So in this year, we see some very important things. <clears throat> First off, it is for the land. Verse 2 had said, when you enter the land I am giving you, the land will observe a Sabbath, all right? Now, one of the things I think we need to understand, and I think American Christians are pathetic at, is that God doesn't only care about people. God created more than people. All of his creation is important to him. God cares about his entire creation. Romans 8 says that the whole creation is groaning, waiting for God to redeem it and restore it and reset it and put it back the way it's supposed to be. You can call that shalom, okay? That's what it means, wholeness, put back together. So God cares about all of his creation, not just people. People are his crowning creation. They are the only ones made in his image. They are the only ones that he puts his spirit inside of. But he cares about all of his creation. Do we worship the creation? No, that would be idolatry, and that's pagan. Do we take care of it? Actually, we're commanded to. That's Genesis, I think it's 2-7. If not, it's in there. You are commanded, creation mandate, to take care of. The first thing God told Adam, basically, was he's to be a steward of the garden. And he was not a good steward. Okay? You are still to be a steward. Right? Christians really should be the best environmentalists in the world because they should understand that it's God's land and he's entrusted it to us to take care of. And so when we don't do that, we violate it. And so that's what you have going on right here. So you have God caring for his creation. Okay, Six years you work it. The seventh year the land rests. All right, The animals are going to rest too. You're going to rest too. It's going to be a rest for all of creation. You look in it. And it says also, at the end of verse number four, that it's a Sabbath to the Lord. And so you also have the creator. 
okay, that is, is the focus of this. So the creation and the creator are coming together in this idea of the Sabbath uh, year. Now, this is referred to in Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11 also, and in Deuteronomy 15, 1 and 2. So you can read up further on it in those passages. But the Sabbath, okay, is the primary way of showing covenant faithfulness to God. Okay? Now, let's just step back and review for a second. So what this means is God's people were supposed to demonstrate to him and the world that they were part of God's covenant and followers of God by every week keeping the Sabbath, by every year keeping these seven different appointed times to the Lord, by every seven years keeping a Sabbath year, and as we'll see in a minute, every 50 years keeping the Jubilee. So all of these were opportunities to demonstrate faithfulness to God. They're also tied very intricately to the land. The land was key in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go back and read uh, Genesis chapter 1, you will see that there are three main topics in chapter 1. God, okay, in the beginning God, okay, created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on and it begins to talk about the land. And he's preparing the land for somebody, which leads to your third topic, mankind. So it's God, land, and man. That's what chapter 1 of Genesis is about. And so throughout the rest of the scriptures, you will see the land is very, very significant and important. In Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham, he said he called him to leave his place, his family, his land, etc., and he was going to take him to a new land. Okay, you get to the book of Joshua, after Moses has already freed the people from Egypt, and Joshua is taking the people into the promised land. land. Okay, from then all the way through the rest of the Old Testament... It is a constant struggle and a battle over will the people remain faithful to God and stay in the land or will they be vomited out? That's the language God uses. They will be vomited out. Okay? And so the land is very significant. Okay? You can see that all throughout the scriptures. So in the seventh year, okay, the land gets a rest, the people get a rest, and God is lifted up as sovereign God who provides for his people. Now, the obvious question, and in agrarian society is if that's the case how are we going to eat and see god knows the questions he anticipates them he knows what you're going to ask and he's already got it taken care of that he is going to provide for them so much food in the year prior that they're not going to need to worry about it and we'll see that as we as we finish reading this chapter in just a minute and so that's the sabbath year okay and i just want to summarize as as rest uh in the, in the lord basically and I want to spend the rest of my time on the year of Jubilee. The Sabbath year is, is significant. The year of Jubilee takes that to a whole nother level. Okay? Um, the year of Jubilee <clears throat> is every 50 years. It's after seven groups of seven years. So every seven years you have a what year? No, Sabbath. Sabbath year, okay? And after seven cycles of Sabbath years, seven times seven is 49, the next year is the 50th, and that is the year of Jubilee, okay? Now, <clears throat> for the year of Jubilee, let's look at Leviticus chapter 25, 8 through 55. So in other words, the rest of the chapter, okay? So we looked at uh, Leviticus 23, and that showed us the different feasts, right? Now, Leviticus 25 is about the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year, okay? So, 
Leviticus 25, starting in verse 8. Okay, follow along with me. All right, it's a little bit lengthy. You are to count seven sabbatical years, or Sabbath years, seven times seven years. So the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. See, there's multiplication in the Bible, guys. Then you are to sound a trumpet loudly. Now, what, what day should that remind you of? Trumpets, right? Okay. And also, you'll see, on the seventh month, on the tenth day, which is what day? Seven. The tenth of the seventh month is? Day of? Atonement. Okay, good. See, we already learned about that. So this builds on it, okay? So we got trumpets. We've got the day of atonement on the tenth. You will sound it throughout your land on the day of atonement. So the Jubilee year is going to start on the Day of Atonement, which means it's going to overlap with the whole Feast of Tabernacles, all right, for that year. You are to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. It will be your Jubilee, when each of you is to return to his property and each of you to his clan. The 50th year will be your Jubilee. You are not to sow, reap what grows by itself, or harvest its untended vines. It is to be holy to you because it is the Jubilee. You may only eat its produce directly from the field. So this is another Sabbath year. So let me just pause for a second here. It's the 50th, which means the year before was what year? The 49th. But that was also the seventh year of a seventh cycle, which means it was also a what year? Seven. It was a Sabbath year. So you have a Sabbath year followed by the Jubilee year, which means for how many years in a row are you not farming? Two. Two. Which means you really have to have a lot of food produced in that sixth year because year seven and eight, you're not growing. you got to get all the way through to the next year with food. All right, so God says he'll provide. <clears throat> all right, so this will be your Jubilee when each of you is to return to his property, each of you to his clan. Verse 11, the 50th year will be your Jubilee. You are not to sow to reap... Um, Reap what grows by itself or harvest its untended vines. Verse 12, it is to be holy to you because it is the Jubilee. You may only eat its produce directly from the field. In the year of Jubilee, each of you will return to his property. If you make a sale to your neighbor or purchase from him, do not cheat one another. You are to make the purchase from your neighbor based on the number of years since the last Jubilee. He is to sell to you based on the number of remaining harvest years. You are to increase its price in proportion to a greater amount of years and de decrease its price in proportion to a lesser amount of years because what he is selling to you is a number of harvests. You are not to cheat one another, but fear your God, for I am Yahweh your God. He continues in verse 18. You are to keep my statutes and ordinances and carefully observe them so that you may live securely in the land. Notice how it's connected to living in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit so that you can eat, be satisfied, and live securely in the land. If you wonder, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't sow or gather our produce? I will appoint my blessings for you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the previous harvest. You will be eating this until the ninth year when its harvest comes in. The land is not to be permanently sold because it is mine, and you are only foreigners and temporary residents on my land. You are to allow the redemption of any land you occupy. If your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. 
If a man has no family redeemer, but he prospers and obtains enough to redeem his land, he may calculate the years since its sale, repay the balance to the man he sold it to, and return to his property. But if he cannot obtain enough to repay it, what he sold will remain in possession of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. It is to be released at the Jubilee, so he may return to his property. If a man sells a residence in a walled city, his right of redemption will last until a year has passed after its sale. His right of redemption will last a year. If it is not redeemed by the end of a full year, then the house in the walled city is permanently transferred to its purchaser throughout its generations. It is not to be released on the Jubilee. But houses and villages that have no walls around them are to be classified as open fields. The right to redeem such houses stays in effect, and they are to be released at the Jubilee. Verse 32. Concerning the Levitical cities, the Levites always have the right to redeem houses in the cities they possess. Whatever property one of the Levites can redeem, a house sold in a city they possess, must be released at the Jubilee, because the houses in the Levitical cities are their possession among the Israelites. The open pasture land around their cities may not be sold, for it is their permanent possession. If your brother becomes destitute and cannot sustain himself among you, you are to support him as a foreigner or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Do not profit or take interest from him, but fear your God and let your brother live among you. You are not to lend him your silver with interest or sell him your food for profit. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother among you becomes destitute and sells himself to you, you must not force him to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired hand or temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released from you, and he may return to his clan and his ancestral property. They are not to be sold as slaves, because they are my slaves that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You are not to rule over them harshly, but fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to be from the nations around you. You may purchase male and female slaves. You may also purchase them from the foreigners staying with you or from their families living among you, those born in your land. These may become your property. You may leave them to your sons after you do inherit property. You may make them slaves for life. But concerning your brothers, the Israelites, you must not rule over one another harshly. If a foreigner or temporary resident lives among you, prospers, but your brothers living near him become destitute and sells himself to the foreigner living among you or to a member of the foreigner's clan, he has the right of redemption after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him. His uncle or cousin may redeem him, or any of his close relatives from his clan may redeem him. If he prospers, he may redeem himself. The one who purchased him is to calculate the times from the year he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee. The price of his sale will be determined by the number of years. It will be set for him like the daily wages of a hired hand. If many years are still left, he must pay his redemption price and proportion to them based on his purchase price. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he will calculate and pay the price of his redemption in proportion to his remaining years. He will stay with him like a man hired year by year. A foreigner own, foreign owner is not to rule over him harshly in your sight. If he is not redeemed in any of these ways, he and his children are to be released at the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites are my slaves. They are my slaves that I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. All right. Now, that's a lot of text. All right. And that's a lot of back and forth about um, people being sold into slavery and lands and Jubilees and all this. So we need to break this down a little bit and try to understand what is going on here. All right. So, first off, the year of Jubilee, all right, we need to understand that one thing, it's about the reign of God, okay? So, God is, is in control, all right? God is ruling, God is reigning. Who owns the land? 
God owns the land, okay? So no people own the land, okay? God owns the land, okay? The word reign implies that there is a what? King or a kingdom, all right? So God is king. The land is his kingdom, okay? He owns it, and he is simply leasing it out to people to have them steward or manage it. So you, if you have land, okay, in the Israelite time period, you are a what? A what? Okay, a slave or a steward or a manager of the land, okay? I'll get to the slave word in just a minute, all right? So God is in control. That's the first thing that we've got to understand. That right there changes some of our thinking, all right, about land. One of the things that we need to try to do, and we will not do it perfectly or completely today, but when we look at this, we need to realize that, yes, this is Old Testament, but God is teaching us about himself. He's teaching us about who he is and his character. And his character doesn't change. So as we look at this, we're looking to see, um, yes, we want to know what was God doing in the Old Testament, but we also want to know what does this mean for me today? And we find that out by figuring out what is God teaching us about himself, people, his creation, etc., and how does that apply to us today? And so the first thing we do see, though, is that God is king. God reigns. And so we have to start our thinking process with that today. All right? We buy and sell land. Okay? We have houses, cars, property, etc. All right? The first thing we've got to realize is who's king. All right? We are stewards. We are not owners of anything. What will you take to the grave with you? Nothing. Nothing. What did you come into this world with? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? So in between the dash of your life, okay, in between your birthday and your date of death, okay, that big dash in between, however many years that is, God has allowed you, he has put things into your life that you are to be a steward of, and you have to give account to God for how you manage those things. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to who? The Lord, exactly. All right? So the centerpiece of the text of Leviticus is summarized by Psalm 24. As the psalmist sings it, so Moses clarifies in verse 23 of our text. Leviticus 25, verse 23. The land is not to be permanently sold because it is mine, and you are only foreigners and temporary residents on my land. God owns the land. Okay? This is at the heart of the chapter. And it provides the hinge between the social and economic systems and their theological rationale, which we're going to look at. So the land is God's. It's been promised and given to Israel as part of their redemption from Egypt and part of God's covenant with Abraham. So land is divinely owned and it is divinely gifted. So God can give it to whom he wants. Right Now, when Israel came into the land, there was people already there. Now, this is a whole other issue that there's no way we have time to unpack today. But let me just summarize something for you. The people that were already there were pagans. Okay? By that, I simply mean they did not worship God. So from God's standpoint, that means they're in rebellion to the king of the universe. And what you have to understand is the sins reach a certain point, and God judges them. And they were expelled, and the land was given to his people. Now, his people were then supposed to be a lighthouse to the world. So little Israel, which is in the, the middle of the, the Middle East, if you will, it's this little piece of land that people have fought over for thousands of years. It's not very big, all right? It's supposed to be a lighthouse and a beacon for everybody spreading out from that little area. 
So God gives the land to this people. If they don't faithfully follow his divine judgment, or, or don't faithfully follow him, though, divine judgment will then follow them. And as I mentioned earlier, they will be expelled or vomited out of the land. So the land becomes a tangible witness both to God's control of history, all right? In other words, how in the world does this little people Israel get this land? Because God put them there. That's still an enigma to people today. How in the world does Israel keep that little piece of land? Because God keeps it there for them, okay? So the land is a tangible witness both to God's control of history and his relationship with Israel and as a witness to the moral and practical demands that that relationship required. And what I mean by that is, if they weren't faithful, they get what? Booted. That's right. Vomited out. All right? Who else did that happen to? Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve. They were not faithful to God, and what did he do? Expelled them from the land. It's the same thing. Okay? So all these things are connected. The people were God's tenants. Now, you can go to the Gospels, and you can find Jesus telling multiple parables about how the people, the tenants, did not give proper uh, payment and respect back to the owner of the land, God. So you see in the New Testament, this imagery continues, okay, by Jesus. In Leviticus 26, 42, <clears throat> sorry. It says they are not to be sold as slaves because they are my slaves that I brought out of the land of Egypt. So we need to make a comment here, okay? Now, I don't have time today to do a full-blown sermon on, on slavery either, but one thing we do need to understand is when you see the word slave in the Bible, all right, it is not the same type of slavery that you think of from the, the past in America, okay? The transatlantic slave and all that, that is not the same type of thing, all right? So in this verse, he's saying that God has freed his people out of Egypt, right? Now, in Egypt, it was similar, maybe, more similar, all right, to the transatlantic and American-type slavery than what we're talking about here. And that's what God freed them from, all right, which we'll see in a minute, which is why they aren't to be harsh like that to other people. So this verse, Leviticus 25, 42, along with um, verse 55, indicates the relationship between God and his people. Three times in this chapter, Exodus is mentioned, and two more times in chapter 26. So no one could own an Israelite because they were already owned by who? God. God owned them. Now in the New Testament, we find similarly that we are purchased by the blood of God. Okay, we belong to Christ, which is why 1 Corinthians 6 says you can't do whatever you want with your body. Your body is not yours. You've been bought with a price. What was the price? It was Christ's blood. So you don't own yourself. Okay, if you're a believer, you don't own yourself. Christ owns you. He bought you with his blood. And so you have to have his permission, if you will, to do whatever you think you might want to do with your body. All right, it's got to line up with him. It's got to be in faithfulness to him and his covenant with us, the new covenant. So God bought the Israelites off the slave blocks of Egypt. He freed the slaves, and therefore they are not to be making each other slaves. That's exactly what they were freed from. So why would you take your brother or sister and put them back under that type of bondage? And the word used is this harshness. Do not treat them harshly. And so that's the thinking that's going on behind this. Because God purchased them, they're his. So they can't be sold into slavery to anybody else. They're already owned by, by a, a master. 
King Yahweh. So the other thing that we look at and we see in here is this idea of redemption. And I've been talking about that a little bit already. But the year of Jubilee has within it the ideas of redemption, release, and, and restoration. All three of these are part and parcel of what's going on. In chapters 25 and 27 of Leviticus, all right, redemption okay, is a major theme. It occurs 10 times in chapter 25 and 12 times in chapter 27. Chapter 26, which comes obviously right in the middle, okay, is a chapter that focuses on the blessings and curses of the faithfulness to the covenant or lack of faithfulness to the covenant. And so God lists out all of these blessings if they will be faithful and obey, and then he lists out these curses, including vomiting them out of the land if they do not obey. On either side is 25 and 27, which has all of this discussion about redemption and, and what God is, is going to do and wants to do with these people. So these three ideas all come together, redemption, release, and restoration. Sabbath, as the sign of this covenant, land is the means of producing the, the blessings. The land is going to produce so much for them. It's called a land of milk and honey. In other words, they'll never worry about what to eat or how much to eat. They'll always have something to eat. They won't have to worry about the animals. They won't have to worry about invaders. But there's one catch. They have to be what? Faithful to who? To God. That's the covenant. He, he took them out of Egypt. He's bringing them to a new land. He's giving them a land of their own. He's going to remove the people that are there. He's going to make them into a nation. He'll bless them unbelievably so. Through them, the entire world is supposed to be blessed. You've got to do one thing. Be loyal and faithful to me. That's what God's saying. And if you don't, you break the covenant. And if you break the covenant, there's consequences. And that's what you read about all through the Old Testament, these stories. So when, <clears throat> when God takes them, all right, and he puts them into this situation. We already know, and God knew, that there's going to be a rebellion. And they're not going to do what he says. And people are going to fall upon hard times. Now, there's, there's many ways okay, that you could fall in hard times. When God took the people and they, they put them into the promised land, okay, you read about this in the book of Joshua. And then each of the 12 tribes, okay, there's 12 tribes because Abraham was given the promise. He has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons, and those become the 12 tribes. When those 12 tribes and all their descendants, they arrive in the land of Canaan, the promised land, okay, the land is divided up, and each tribe is given a portion of land based on the size of the tribe. Within the tribe, okay, each clan is given a portion of land based on the size of the clan. And within the clan, each household is given a portion of land based on the size of the household. Okay, so you have tribe, clan, and household. Y'all with me? Now, that's not how it worked in Canaan, okay, where they were coming in. In Canaan, it was more like the rulers and his people, the nobles, they controlled all the land. Everybody else paid taxes to the king and rented land from him, okay? So it was not the same at all. Now, <clears throat> I need you to think with me a little bit about how life works and some situations that could arise so that we can understand what's going on in Leviticus 25. So the tribes have been given the land. 
Within that, the clan gets some land, and within that, the household gets the land. So let's pretend that each of your tables is um, a different household, all right? So if you have a household back there in the corner, all right, and that household there with their four girls there, um, they have fallen on hard times. And for whatever reason, their land did not produce good crops this year. Well, that's a little bit of a problem, because if you don't have crops, then uh, you don't have what? Food. And if you don't have food, what happens? You die. You die. Okay? So that household is in trouble. Okay? So there's a couple options here. Okay? Another household of the clan, okay, so Emil's household, could bail them out. Okay? Could give them a loan. They could, they could work that off for Emil. Okay? He, he could uh, lease their land from them. And he would pay them based on when the next jubilee year is and based on how much crops he would get out of the land. Okay? Now, when he would pay them, he would give them the money. Right? And then as the crops came, okay, he would be getting paid back. All right? You all with me so far? Yeah. Now, however, let's say that Emil, you know, he leased it out, he gave him the money. But uh, for some reason, them and their land, they just... I don't know what it is, but they can't produce. And so they're still getting no crops and no crops. Well, they can't borrow anything from Emil because they, they've already owed him all this money. And so what's their next option? Well, they can go somewhere else. Someone else could try to bail them out. Eventually, if this got bad enough, okay, they might even have to go to a foreigner. Okay, that's all listed in the text. So each of these stages puts them further and further into debt. And the more you get into debt, the harder it is to get out and live. Now, with God, he is very much concerned about his people. Remember, when he put them in the land, he gave each tribe, each clan, and each household land. And in the household... Okay, as they grew and multiplied, uh, the sons would then get part of that household property. Why? Everyone gets land so everyone can do work. What? Work. So everyone can have food, so everyone can live. Right? So the whole point is everybody is participating in this process. Okay? Except when this disaster happens. You could have another situation. If the people are in rebellion to God, you could have uh, marauders come in. Okay, enemies that come in and steal all your crops. Now, God had promised to protect against that if they were what to him? Faithful. But if they're not faithful, then that could happen. Okay, they come in, they steal all your crops. That happens all through the time of the judges. Okay, so Gideon is actually threshing down in, in a wine press, okay, because he's afraid someone's going to come steal his stuff. All right. So this whole thing begins to snowball and gets to a point that you could be sold off into slavery. And, and this, by the way, is the type of thing that happens in other countries. A few month, uh, weeks ago when we did our Freedom Sunday and we looked at the work of International Justice Mission and what the Bible says about justice, this is the type of thing that happens. Okay? A family gets in trouble and they feel they have no recourse. And in, in the, the West, we're like, how could you sell your kid? Well, I'll tell you how. Because the choice is, I sell my kid, or I sell myself, or we all starve to death. Now, if I sell myself, I'm separated from my family forever, and I will probably never be able to provide for them. 
if I sell my kid into some, some kind of work, okay, there is still a hope that I could get enough money back at some point and get them back out of there and my family will be back together again. Okay? Family is much more crucial and critical in, in these cultures than what our individualized American culture you know, often perceives. And so that's why they would do these. But if you remember when we had that Freedom Sunday and we talked about you know, kids being sold uh, to make bricks all day long, and they might be sold for 50 bucks, all right? They, they're given 50 bucks, and that kid's only making a nickel a day plus interest he's got to pay. Dad's got to pay the interest, right, on the loan. So there's no way for them to ever get out. Well, God doesn't want that to happen with his people. So first off, he doesn't allow interest to the Israelites in between each other, okay? Why? Because what did God show them? He showed them love and compassion, okay? Remember back in Leviticus 19, love your neighbor? All right, so God says out of love and compassion, all right, you don't charge them interest. Why? Because if you're in a bad spot, all right, you, you got no way out. You're, you're basically begging me for help. And I say, yeah, sure, I'll help you out. Uh, but you got to pay me this interest that basically you're never going to be able to pay back. Am I helping you out? No. What am I doing? I'm taking advantage of you. And that is not love. So I'm trying to be greedy. Okay? This is the problem. Okay? And this is where the rubber hits the road in the 21st century. This is exactly what goes on all the time. So someone is, we say, down on their luck. Okay? They're in a bad situation, and someone else is going to take advantage of them. Yeah, sure. We call them loan sharks, right? Yeah, I'll give you a loan. And the interest rate is so high, you'll never be able to pay it off. Credit card companies do this all the time, okay? Someone that can't get, uh, they don't have good credit. So yeah, well, we'll, we'll give it to you. You're just going to pay 45% in interest, right? That's ridiculous. That is unjust. It's unbiblical. And this is what God calls taking advantage of people. And it's a lack of compassion. You don't care about them. Who do you care about? Yourself. Yourself. Whereas what you're supposed to be doing is you're trying to help this, this poor family that got into a bad situation back here. You're supposed to be trying to help them get back on their feet so they can provide for their family. All the more so because you're an Israelite and they're an Israelite, right? So same thing that we need to think about today. So that's what debt servants is all about, okay? That's what it means to be a servant in debt or the word slave in this context, okay? That's what we're talking about with God's people. Now, <clears throat> again, it was kind of more like an indentured uh, servant, okay? So I, I just w want you to keep it straight that it's not the first thing Americans usually think about when we say the word slave is because of the, the history in America, and that's not what we're talking about. Now, over time, <clears throat> what happened, do you think, in Israel's history. Well, if we go to Jeremiah, chapter 34, verse 16 and 17, this is what we read. It says, You have changed your minds and profaned my name. Each has taken back his male and female slaves who have been freed to go wherever they wanted, and you have again subjugated them to be your slaves. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me by proclaiming freedom, each man for his brother and for his neighbor. I hereby proclaim freedom for you. This is the Lord's declaration. To the sword, to plague and famine, I will make you a horror to all the earth's kingdoms. What in the world is going on? Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet. 
God sends his prophets, which I call God's cops, to the covenant enforcers. He sends Jeremiah to correct the injustices that are going on with the people. Okay? Now, he didn't say the year of Jubilee, but did you catch the terminology? The freedom. Proclaim the freedom. That's the year of Jubilee. Proclaim freedom for the people. They're supposed to be free. See, in God's system, in order to protect the people, see this table back here? They are never supposed to be indentured servants or slaves or in poverty their entire life. Because on the 50th year in the year of Jubilee, what's supposed to happen for them? Redemption and release and return to their home and their land. They go back to their home and their land. They go back and they have basically a fresh start. You see, the loan can't be more than the 50 years. They can't be working for somebody else for more than the 50 years. So at a most, that's like one generation. What does that do? That prevents one guy, for instance, from grabbing up all the land and owning everything. And everybody else working for him. See, that can't happen. Because every 50 years, the land goes back to where? Back to the family, the clan, the household that it was assigned to. All right? Now, the exceptions were for in a walled city, that's because it's not a plot of land that they're growing, you know, vegetables and whatnot on. It's inside a city. And the exception was for the Levites, they can always redeem theirs because the Levites didn't have land of their own. They just have certain plots for the Levites. So they have city or they have uh, houses and they have land outside to farm, okay? So now look at Nehemiah chapter 5. <clears throat> okay? So the problem in this Jubilee idea, okay, is that it didn't get followed. And what happened was, over the years, through the prophets, the idea of this jubilee began to develop, okay? This is where you need to understand, but by the time you get to New Testament stuff, you've got to see what took place between Leviticus and the New Testament. So, at first, it's this idea of freedom and release and restoration of the land and of money and, and all this stuff. Very tangible, okay? But over time, it begins to develop into a more spiritual aspect as well. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, says, there was widespread outcry. Now, that word outcry, by the way, that's what happened when God's people cried. They outcried or they cried out in Egypt, and God heard them and freed them. Okay? This is what the, the Bible talks about in Proverbs and Psalms when it talks about the poor people whose cry God will hear. Same words, okay? There's a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. So obviously they don't have what? They don't have food. They're asking for it, right? Others are saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Okay, so what's going on? There's a famine, right? You got the family that we just talked about, right? And they don't have any um, food. And so they, they got to mortgage their land, so they got to sell it to somebody, right? So they can get something. Still others are saying, we borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Oh, so now we have taxes also from the king. Now, obviously we just jumped lots of years because in Leviticus they didn't have a king yet, right? But if you know the Bible story at all, the people begged to have a king because everyone else had one. And the prophet Samuel warned them. He said, listen, when you get a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to send your kids off to war. They're going to die. Ah, we want a king. We want a king. So, okay, you got a king. So they had Saul, they had David, they had Solomon, the whole, whole host of them after that. Solomon in particular taxed them to death. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are sub subjecting our sons and our daughters to slavery. 
Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So they, if their fields and their vineyards belong to others, that means they've had to do what? They've had to get someone else to buy or lease them from them until, when are they supposed to get them back? The year of Jubilee, the 50 year, right? I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and the officials, saying, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. Uh-oh, what's the problem with that? What do we read in Leviticus 25? They're not supposed to do. They're not supposed to charge their fellow Israelite interest. Why? Because that's taking advantage of their brother or sister in a bad situation. So I called a large assembly against them. And I said... We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. So leave that up there a minute. Okay, so now they give you some more context. The situation had gotten so bad that people had to sell themselves to foreigners, non-Israelites, okay, to work their lands. Now, they don't play by the same rules, okay? But what is Nehemiah saying here? He's saying, listen— we, we've gathered up money. We, we've gotten people to understand the seriousness of the situation. And we've been able to pay, to redeem, to ransom them back from the foreigners. But now you guys are doing the same thing to them. You're putting them back in slavery. What are you doing? So they remained silent and they could not say a word because they're what? Guilty. All right? And I said, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? So you notice, again, it's connected with the fear of God, which also Leviticus 25 was connected with fearing or respecting and obeying God. Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. <coughs> Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, olive oil that you have been assessing them. And they said, we will return these things and require nothing more. We'll do as you say. So I summoned the priest and made everyone take an oath to do this. So Nehemiah is correcting the wrong that was going on. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property anyone who doesn't keep his promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. And so the whole assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. So Nehemiah is correcting some of the wrongs that are going on in here. All right, so we see that the year of Jubilee includes the release and restoration also. So it's like a super Sabbath, okay? So they, they fear God. They don't take advantage of one another. Trust God to sustain them, okay? And then there's a release and a restoration. They get released back. They get to go back to their land. The property is restored to them, and they can begin anew. So it's also a renewal. It's a fresh start. So the idea here, again, is that the land, okay, is God's gift to them. And how they use that land and how they treat one another shows their relationship and faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to God. Now, we get to Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. The expansion of the Jubilee year here begins to become a messianic hope. Okay, This is where, when I said a second ago, that it isn't just money and land anymore. It's going to become spiritualized. So this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. He's talking about the, the, the servant of God, okay, the Messiah who's going to come. He says, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. 
He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The islands will wait for his instruction. Notice he said justice a lot. This is what God, Yahweh, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and life to those who walk on it. I, Yahweh, have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will keep you and appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. In order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house, the spirit of the Lord... Oh, this is the next one. So notice that the end here. What's he going to do? So God's servant, when he comes, okay, is going to bring out prisoners. He's going to release them. He's going to open blind eyes, okay? All of that is leading up to, okay, in Isaiah's theology of talking about God's future Messiah coming. And then we get to Isaiah 61, okay? <laughs> Isaiah 61... The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty. What's proclaim liberty mean? That's what year? That's the Jubilee year. To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There it is again. And the day of our God's vengeance. To provide for those who mourn. In Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair. They will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Okay, so in Isaiah, as the book progresses, okay, God is un, um, unwinding or revealing his plan. Okay, the people are not able to fix themselves, which he knew they never would. And so he begins to tell them how he's going to send the servants, okay, which is going to become him, okay? Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be that servant. He's going to come. And so now this idea of a jubilee year becomes spiritualized, and it, and it grows beyond land and money to include spiritual things. It includes opening blind eyes. It includes setting the prisoner free, which all fits with the jubilee theme. It's just expanded. Watch what happens when we get to Luke chapter 4, okay? We're in the New Testament now. We're in the Gospels. Jesus is on the scene. Jesus shows up at the temple. Now watch what happens in Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being acclaimed by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, and set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. What's he going to say now? And he began by saying, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. What did Jesus just do? Jesus just got up there and said, the Messiah from Isaiah that is going to come and, and proclaim the Jubilee in a way greater fashion than what you saw in Leviticus is here now. Today is the day of the Lord. The Jubilee that you want, it's me. It's here. And so here Jesus is opening up the Old Testament passage in a whole new way 
I'm pointing forward to what he started, and it will not be finished until he comes back, okay? We won't have complete freedom and, and release of everything until he comes back at the second coming. But that's what we're talking about. <clears throat> The, the, um, the use of the word release here um, in both a spiritual and a financial sense, and that is the same word used back in Leviticus for the release of the Jubilee year. John Golden Gay has said concerning economics and ethics, he said, For centuries, economics was understood as a subdiscipline of ethics. In the 19th century, this connection was severed with disastrous consequences for both people and planet. What is he saying? He's saying how we use our money and how we think about money used to be part of ethics, right and wrong, how you live. And then it got separated to a whole new category, and we don't consider it right and wrong and moral and ethics anymore. It's not part of it. It's a separate thing. And he says that has had disastrous effects. Here's the deal. We've forgotten who's king. We've forgotten that Jesus is king, and he owns everything. You don't own your money. You don't have a right to do whatever you want with your money. You don't have a right, okay, to take advantage of someone else in their bad situation. Actually, that's stealing. Leviticus 19.17 had said, You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Well, what do you mean, don't harbor hatred? Why are you bringing this up, Kevin? Because what is hatred? Hatred isn't just a feeling. What is hatred? Hatred is an action. Love isn't just a feeling, is it? No. Love is an action. How do you hate your brother? When he's down and out and you take advantage of him to benefit yourself and make his life even worse. Is that loving your brother? No, that's hating your brother. Proverbs 19.7 puts it this way. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends keep their distance from him? He may pursue them with uh, words, but they are not there. What is this talking about? See, when that situation happens and the family loses out and they don't have anything, they got to borrow, the family gets shamed, okay? And, and then family members want to disown each other because you want to get rid of the shame. What he's saying is, you can't do that. That's not love. That's hate. So see, if, if you have someone in your family, all right, or since we're talking Christianity now, Okay, in Christian family, the church, okay, and they do something wrong or they do something shameful, you have a choice. You can love them or you can hate them. Loving them would mean, as we just read a minute ago, you rebuke them and you attempt to restore them, Galatians 6.1, right? Hating them would mean you cast them off and you don't be friends with them because you don't want to be associated with their shame. That's hating them. What? Yeah, see, we don't think this way. That's how God thinks, though. Christ took on himself the shame, right? What is compassion? C.H. Wright says this. The important thing is not whether you feel compassion, but whether you act with compassion. See, this fits right back into it. I don't feel like doing it. Who cares? God says do it. See, love isn't just a feeling. Yeah, you should have the feeling, too. But if you don't, we'll do it anyways. So the family needs help. You've got the means to help them without taking advantage of them. What should you do? You should help them without taking advantage. That's love. That's compassion. To not do so is hate. And so <clears throat> the last thing is that this is a reset. 
as I mentioned. The year of Jubilee is, is an opportunity for a reset. So imagine if you're that family back there. You've been going through this for 20-some years, all right? You've been struggling, and you can't wait for what year to show up? The year of Jubilee, because you know that on the year of Jubilee, you get to go back where? Home to your land. You know that on the year of Jubilee, guess what? You're back to square one, and square one is better than square negative, right? And so you get to restart, and you get to hope again and trust that God will help you and things will be better in the future. And if for some reason they're not, then you can hope for the next 50th year, which is the year of Jubilee, and you get another reset. In the New Testament, let me just throw a couple verses in and we'll be done. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Okay? How do you do that? This is basically a Jubilee principle. This is an Old Testament and the New Testament principle. This is the character of God. And this is why New Testament and Old Testament, they flow together. We have the, the concepts of, of liberty here, working for good. You have the freedom to do good, do it. Okay, That's actually another verse in the New Testament. Um, and Peter, 1 Peter 4, 17, he says, The time has come for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Okay, we all get upset about what, what the world does instead of focusing on whether or not we're being faithful to God. We need to get God's house in order. We need to stop taking advantage of people. All right? Lost people do lost stuff, okay? Ungodly people do ungodly things. The problem is when godly people do ungodly things, who is God sending his prophets to rebuke all through the Old Testament? Mostly lost people or mostly his people? His people. His people. He already knows what the lost people do. They've already rejected him. Yes, judgment is coming upon them. Okay, but the Bible is mostly about his people and how his people keep rebelling. Acts 1.6 says, When they had come together, they asked, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? What's he talking about? He's talking about the restoration. He's talking about putting things back in order. He's talking about, is God going to do the final restoration? This is the outgrowth of that Jubilee principle. Acts 3.21 says, Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophet from the beginning. Again, this Jubilee idea expanded into the restoration of all things. Now, you put it into practical concerns. You look at Acts 4.34. I have two verses left. Acts 4.34 says, There was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. Now, the only thing I want you to notice here is that there were needy people, but then there were not needy people because who intervened? The people that had. The people that had helped the people that had not. Okay? Now, look at this verse carefully. All right? All those who owned lands, there was not a needy person among them. And look at this verse from Deuteronomy, which God said would happen when the people were faithful to his covenant. Deuteronomy 15.4. There will be no poor among you because the Lord is certain to bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. So let, let me just make an analogy and a connection. 
the early church, they got it. It didn't last. It got messy real fast. Okay? Just go to Acts 5. All right? It got messy fast. But the early Christians, they got some of this. They understood. Okay? When God's in charge of the house, his people have what they need. There's not a needy person. That's what he promised them in Deuteronomy. And we find an axe. I don't think this is an accident. With the new church and the Holy Spirit and the people listening to God, there's no needy person. That's no accident. That's God's people taking care of God's people the way they're supposed to be. So why do we have so many needy people? Because God's people aren't taking care of God's people. That's why. We're not following God's plan for our lives. We're not doing what needs to be done. Which means we need to fix it. And stop worrying about everybody outside the church. The summary for the Jubilee is all of these different aspects. It's the reign of God, it's rest, it's redemption, it's release, it's restoration, and it's a reset. So, this is the last week in this series that we've been doing on these feasts. I hope that you've learned some things from the Old Testament. I hope that you've seen some connections with the New Testament. (coughs) I hope that you can see that the Old Testament is not useless. And I hope that you are challenged that God says a lot more than we think he does about the practical day-to-day about how we live our lives and how we treat each other, our neighbors, and people in the church. And that everything that he's given us, he's given us to bless others. Yes, it's, it's for us to be able to eat and not die, and it's also for us to help others. And so we need to start thinking through, okay? We live in a society that has all sorts of problems, okay? We live in a city that has all sorts of issues and concerns. And every one of us knows people that are hurting in multiple ways, including economically, which is what Leviticus 25 was dealing with uh, in a lot of ways. The church needs to reevaluate its economic policy. The church needs to reevaluate how how it responds and and how it helps people. You know, in third world countries, there's a lot of nonprofits and church groups that do micro loans. It's interesting to me how so often we come up with innovative ideas that are, are gracious and generous and, and not uh, judgmental and not oppressive in other parts of the world. Um, but in our own backyard, we do like next to nothing. And so we need to think through um, how that works and ask God to show us how we can be a blessing in other people's lives and, and help those who need it. So if you've been blessed, ask God how you can use that to be a blessing to others. And if you're in a, a predicament right now, <coughs> know that God is your hope. The Jubilee was a literal, tangible thing every 50 years. Um, but God offers even more than that. He offers a spiritual and physical Jubilee. And so um, seek his faith and his people, if you know someone or are in that situation, about what the solution might be. So 
Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for the time together today. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word. And I pray, Lord, that I pray that we've learned a couple of things, but then I pray even more so that our thinking has been challenged and we would seek you and your word about what that means in the larger ramifications. How do we take these things and and put them into practice in our own church here and then in our city and in the other circles in which we travel and, and live so that uh, you would be glorified and that you can use us uh, to help others. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Mm.